So hello and welcome to this Ipsos Views podcast, which is the latest in an ongoing series where we talk to experts from around Ipsos to explore the topics and themes of their thought leadership. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak to some of the authors of the new Ipsos Views white paper, Time to Decide, Measuring Response Time for Innovation and Brand Growth. And it's a real collaborative effort, this one, because it brings together experts from across our specialisms, which will be clear when I introduce our three guests today, starting with Manuel Garcia-Garcia, who is the Global Neuroscience Lead and part of the Global Science Organization. Hi, Manuel. Hello, how are you? Thanks for having me. Well, we're very delighted to have you. And we've also got Colin Ho, who is the Chief Research Officer at the Innovation and Market Strategy and Understanding Service Lines. Hi, Colin. Hello, Ashley. Uh, it's lovely to have you too, Colin. And last and certainly not least, we've got Hazel Freeman, who is the Global and Offer Design Director for our Brand Health Tracking Service Line. Hi, Hazel. Hi, Darlene. If it's all right with everyone, I'll start by asking Manuel. The first question, um, which is about the background of response time in market research and in the industry. Um, I know I'm I'm not a researcher myself, but um, when I first joined five or six years ago, first started in the industry, we were using something called implicit response time. And obviously things have moved on a bit since then. So I just wonder, Manuel, if you could tell us a little bit more about some of the history and the background behind this and, and why response time is so important to research and why it's so relevant to the dynamic decision making model. Um, which of course is key to so many things that we do. Yeah, so actually response time, it's been, it was first proposed by a Dutch physiologist, but this is like back in the in the 1800s. And, and ever since response time has been an integral component in cognitive psychology and experimental psychology, became more popular, I guess, a little later into the 20th century, but I didn't get to market research, probably in an experimental mode, um, in the 80s, 90s, and becoming more and more popular in the past, like 15, 20 years. Uh, they're used in market in market research, gained popularity through those implicit tests, like the, the ones you were talking about, and which faster response times uh, were seen as being indicating stronger implicit associations. It has definitely never uh, ever happened at the scale that it that it happens at Ipsos now. And, and also now we can get uh, more insights since, as you mentioned, the development of the dynamic decision-making model. So for, for people in the audience who are not familiar with that as part of the collaboration of the Ipsos Global Science Organization, to which I belong, with, uh, with our academic experts in Lapside in Paris, uh, Professor Vinod Venkatrama, who's a decision scientist at Temple University in Philadelphia here in the United States. Uh, we worked on developing this dynamic decision-making framework in which something that's uh, that's more unique as opposed to dichotomies presented in the past is that decisions are characterized as a continuum between uh, more automatic and deliberative processes. But it's a continuum, it's not a dichotomy. There are many shades of gray uh, in between. And response times are a critical component in this framework because they provide valuable insights into the extent of adaptive processing and conflict that can be uh, experienced by the consumer. So with this uh, framework in mind, the simplicity of faster is always better. It just becomes more complex, but it also becomes uh, richer in, in cognitive processing. And there are some of these processes that are represented throughout this publication on, on different applications that are being used at scale here at Ipsos. 
So, yeah, I think it's interesting what you mentioned there about the move from the dichotomy to the continuum. Um, I remember, again, when I started some years ago now, a lot of the conversation was around System 1 and System 2, as it was then known. Um, I think within Ipsos, we've successfully moved moved on and developed that idea so that we don't see it in such polarised terms. But do you think that the conversation more generally in the industry and amongst in the market research industry is still lagging behind that at all? It could be. And actually, the whole uh, System 1 and System 2 well, presented by, <clears throat> by Kahneman was not meant to um, to represent a confronted uh, dichotomy. I think we are, uh, we're taking a lead and we're playing a, a very critical role in leading the industry towards um, a framework that could be a little more complex, but it's also a lot, a uh, lot richer, and also more faithful to to the existing data and existing science. Hazel, if if you don't mind, um, I just wonder if we could talk maybe a little bit about your own experience in this field. I mean, is this reaction time? Is this something that's relatively new to to brand health work, or does it actually have a longer history? It, it's got a, a decent length history, but used in all sorts of different ways. I, I think the, the primary reason that we see it being particularly valuable is to understand the, the strength of opinion that consumers have, whether that's the, the strength of an association between a, a, an image perception, such as quality in a particular brand, or in the way that I use it most often, um, in association between an asset and a brand. So when I talk about assets there, I mean things like logos or characters or colours. It's really important for brands to own those assets, to own them in a quick, intuitive and unique manner. So when people see a particular character, they automatically associate it with a brand that uses it in that advertising or that uses that asset in its packaging, for instance. So we use... um, something that we refer to as multi-choice reaction time, a way of trying to get an understanding between brands to see how strong those associations are. Do people quickly and intuitively make an association between an asset and a brand? And that's a really valuable use of this sort of technique to understand understand the strength of those associations that consumers have. Thank you. And a similar question for you, actually, Colin. You're here today representing two very different but very large specialisms as Ipsos and so I guess you get to see quite a broad swathe of the work that we do and I I guess this question of response time is is very very important to many things that you're doing. It it is. You're right response time can really be used in a lot of a lot of different situations. I'll I'll give a specific example just for innovation testing alone um, when it comes to uh, trying to understand better whether uh, someone likes a new product or not. If you think about your own uh, experiences and behavior, when you go to a store and you see a new product or you see um, uh, some advertising, it, if you have, um, if you just be a little bit conscious of your your own thoughts, you can almost sense like if you see a new product, whether you reach for it almost automatically and instantaneously because you like it so much that the you know, package is visually appealing and you just want to grab it off the shelf and put it on in your basket versus if you see a new product and that's some hesitation there perhaps because you know the price is a little bit expensive or you're debating well do i really need this i mean i have something similar at home 
So response time helps us really determine uh, when someone chooses a new product, whether it's something that is a really strong inclination towards the new product, or there may be some hesitation there. And that makes a big difference in terms of helping our clients to figure out and predict, you know, whether the, the new product is going to be a success or not. So that's how we've been using uh, response time in trying to uh, test new products offerings. On reading the paper, I was I was interested to understand whether there were situations where a slow response time could ever be considered to be a good thing. Because in most cases, in everything that was described there, it felt like our clients were looking to get a quick response time because that would indicate that the desire for whatever it was they were selling was very, very strong. Are there ever circumstances where, for example, a challenger brand would be uh, would welcome news that actually that, that we, they were creating uncertainty and conflict in consumers' minds? Yeah, there's one study actually that we conducted uh, in 2020 in which we, we examined the role of response time in conflict detection, right? Which is one of the potential reasons for disrupting this adaptive control function that we describe in the dynamic decision-making model. So we explore how conflict detection can be applied to explore the effectiveness of an intervention. So in this case, we had respondents being asked to choose between brands within a category before and after being exposed to uh, an intervention, in this case, a commercial ad that we knew it was effective because it had been previously uh, evaluated with, with some Ipsos approaches. And then we compared the response time before and after this intervention. So our results showed here that this effective intervention for a brand that initially was not the, the preferred one, does generate a conflict in this decision-making and it slows the, the response time after, after ad exposure, right? And that leads to, poten to potentially um, having that decision being changed. So in the case that you are the, the, the challenger brand, the brand that's, that was not preferred at the beginning but has developed an intervention like a commercial that's, that's very effective, you want to see these response times slowing down and ultimately what you want to see is that you create create so much conflict and generate so much disruption in what previously was an automatic decision that the consumer changes their their choice from their previously preferred brand into this new um into this new brand just to build on that a little bit, Manuel, I think you're absolutely right that so many challenger brands use those sort of um, interventions in a way to disrupt what's going on within the market. But they often build on that through what I'd refer to as, as justifying kind of behaviour. So rather than just saying, you know, here I am, I'm new and different, they actually have to give some kind of reason as to why they're different, why they're better, why they're cooler, funkier, whatever it may be than that leading brand. So there's a, this combination of disruption and justification that's going on rather than maybe the more reinforcing behaviour that a brand leader would use where faster response times are often more valuable. So there's the difference there between the sorts of ways different brands may intervene according to their circumstances. I wonder as well, some of the terminology was quite interesting. The word explicit cropped up once or twice in the paper. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, that we, back in the mists of time, we used to call this implicit reaction time. That was the name we used internally, at least. I wonder if you could perhaps elaborate on, on, on some of that. I mean, what's the relevance of implicit and explicit, Hazel? 
I would talk about explicit as being something that people have said that you can measure very easily. So going back to the example that I used earlier on of the connection between an asset and a brand, people may well say, yes, I see that particular character and I recognise that, mm, let me think, um, it's for, oh yeah, those little creatures, they're for M&Ms, aren't they? So that would be an explicit response. The person has got it right. They've connected the characters with the M&M's brand, but they've done that in a very explicit way. And in many research techniques, all we would count is, yes, they've got the answer right. Implicit also takes into consideration the amount of time it takes them to give that response. So in that particular example, I was quite slow. I was kind of thinking it through, trying to decide, trying to remember. Um, Whereas if I'd gone, those characters got their M&M's, absolutely. That's a very strong implicit response. So it's basically about the speed of response. And that's all about the the strength of that connection. Whereas an explicit response is still useful, but it's not so strong. And that's really where the, the use of reaction time techniques gives us the understanding of the strength of those connections. Yeah, so I, I think that to add to that, I would say there's also a degree of um, control uh, for explicit measures. It may it's, it's generally more conscious, and people uh, have a certain degree of control in terms of like whether they choose that or that, you know, this or that. Whereas for an implicit measure like response time, people generally are not trying to control their response, whether they do it quickly or slowly. So response time from that perspective is implicit in the sense that it's probably something that consumers don't try to monitor themselves on as much and try to, uh, you know, be influenced by how they might look in terms of uh, socially desirable responses. There's an element of control there, which also makes response time useful because it's generally not something that uh, consumers or survey respondents are conscious about. And I think a lot of this stuff feels quite intuitive. Again, speaking as a as a non-specialist in this field, non a non-specialist in research, in fact, the fact that some of my thinking might be automatic and some of it might be deliberative does make intuitive sense to me as a human being. But it's good to know that there is actual, you know, there's there's a lot of science behind this, Manuel, and you've been working on this for years. Right, but what I, what I want to remind now is that we are not talking about a dichotomy. We're talking about two, two extremes of a continuum from processes that are more automatic and why why do they happen? So this has a very uh, evolutionary explanation. We need to, you know, our brain is like very small compared to all the energy that it consumes. I think like 20% of our of our calories. So we, as we learn things, we adapt into being more economic. So we make decisions and we take action without having to consume a whole lot of energy. And that's how, that's a very like evolutionary uh, element of, of our species. Um, but, you know, those automatic behaviors that we learn, they can be disruptive and they can be disruptive at, at very different levels. So, so again, just to remind the audience that we're not talking about two extremes, we're talking about a whole continuum in which the automatic are like our motor skills, like we don't need to relearn how to walk every day when we wake up in the morning, and we don't need to relearn what uh, brand of ice cream uh, we prefer all the time, but all, all of those uh, learnings can be disrupted by, by new things that we experience and that can slow down our decision-making until we change um, our choice. Speaking of ice cream, I wonder if perhaps if 
you guys, Colin or Hazel, could could talk maybe about some of the work that you've done. If there's any case studies you might feel able to share. With- I could talk. I'm I'm not quite sure I can talk that exclusively about ice cream, but I can talk very knowledgeably about chocolate. Will that do? Is that is it the right time in the afternoon for a conversation around chocolate? Never a bad time. Never a bad time to talk about chocolate. Um, again, it's about assets. It's about the value of those in a in a buying environment. There are so many different brands of chocolates that use so many different ways in which they want to appeal to their consumers. Um, and Kit Kat, for me, is an example of a brand which has done some fabulous stuff. In fact, it does have an ice cream as well, so you can still think of it as fitting into the ice cream world. But Kit Kat has really built on its associations with have a break, have a Kit Kat that it's used as a slogan for longer than I've been alive. And that's quite a long time now. That slogan, incredibly valuable asset for it, that opportunity it gives them to actually tie in with a a brand moment and a a reason to purchase a great way to disrupt behaviour and has been used very successfully in some recent advertising um, that's been out in bus stops, certainly in the UK, during the time of the pandemic, I'm sure all of us have been in a situation where we've seen our calendar full of half hour Zoom meeting followed by Zoom meeting followed by Zoom meeting followed by Teams meeting occasionally. And KitKat used a great example of using the two fingers of a KitKat bar to represent two time slots within an afternoon as a reason to remind people to have a break and have a break, have a KitKat. Um, an extremely powerful visual asset for them, which, going back to response times, would be something which would perform very strongly for them in an implicit way to build on the associations that people have with the brand. And quite an, an explicit one, I imagine. Yep. Implicit will always have explicit within it. Explicit won't necessarily always have implicit. So you could have a, an explicit response, which isn't a terribly strong implicit one, but you will only have an implicit one if you also have an explicit one. Got yeah. it. It's a Venn diagram. Good. <laughs> Colin, I, I, I know you've, you've had some, you've got some big clients that you can share with us. So, yeah, again, like Hazel, we don't have any ice cream examples, but I think the the fact that you bought ice cream to me is, it's basically ice cream is associated with something that's very uh, emotional to some extent. And besides being tasty and that you have an immediate response to that you, you like a lot. Um, so I can share an interesting study that we did uh, that had a strong emotional component component to it. So what we had done was we had evaluated some claims um, and we used response time as part of the methodology to determine like, you know, what claims were uh, more appealing and those claims were responded to very quickly. Uh, so just suggesting that there was a strong emotional component to it. Now, what we did after we did the study and found the winning claims, we actually took the winning claims and uh, created an ad and put them in Facebook uh, and evaluated that winning claim versus another claim that did not do as well, meaning that that claim when tested earlier has slower response time. And what we found from testing those Facebook ads, one with the winning claim and one was the uh, losing claim, was that the winning claim proved itself out in the real world by having a uh, a, a higher click-through rate. So that was really nice in the sense that, you know, we, we could see the results um, of the claim in the real world uh, and kind of provided some validation that response time did help to 
predict the winning claim, at least in, in that case. Manuel, so we've heard some very real-world grounded applications of this methodology. I wonder, though, if um, just to, to close off, if you could place that back in the context of all the accumulated scientific wisdom that you've been immersing yourself in in these past few years. Yeah, it's always like really fascinating to to hear all these studies, like the case that Colin was referring to now, that is validating this approach to into the real world, into how that impacts actual consumer behavior, especially because there are um, three aspects of, of validation in which we are very strong at Ipsos in, in providing scientific rigor. And these validations are for, for validity, like we are measuring what we say we're measuring, reliability, like was, would this um, replicate in the general population, and also added value. Are we providing uh, extra information, extra data just for the sake of it, or this is actually adding some uh, some value and some some actionable insights. And this, these are like three aspects that that we like to be very strong on, and that we run all of our approaches uh, through. But on top of that, and something specific to to response time, uh, it's like some potential challenges that uh, that you can face when working with this that come from individual differences in cognitive processing, in model response, even on like internet connection. So I think it's important to highlight, because it's very unique to Ipsos, that we're using a very strong scientific approach and also this validation process that I was referring to uh, in a way that our algorithms are calibrated to each individual and also account for this potential variance. So I wanted to, to highlight this strong scientific rigor behind all the approaches that Colin and Hazel were talking about and, and also the ones that are yet to come. All that remains is to thank you all for your time today for listening and to thank our experts Hazel, Manuel and Colin for joining us. I'm sure that we'll be hearing from them again soon. And of course, they are very, very, very available to anybody who would like to speak to them about these subjects even more. So take care, everybody. Speak soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.